0: Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. Once again, we thank you for what today is, a Sunday before this Thanksgiving week. And Lord, I pray that our minds would always be focused on giving you thanks. That our minds would always be focused on the thankfulness of Thursday and not on the gimmies and, and wants of the following Friday but that our hearts would always be focused on being thankful and content with what you have given to us. And we thank you that you've even written in your word what what Paul gave to us as the key of life, the secret of life, being content with whatever you have given to us. And knowing that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So Lord, I pray that as we work our way through these last few spiritual gifts that you would uh, open our ears open our eyes open our hearts to hear what you have for us this morning that your seeds of truth may be buried within us and bear real fruit in our lives and I pray all these things in Jesus name amen in the sports world there are sports fans of different teams and then there are sports fans of different teams, right? What I mean by this is is this, is that there are certain fans who just sort of root for a team by default. They grew up in that team's hometown or that area, or they like an individual athlete on that team, or their family members root for that, that team, and so they automatically root for that team. It's just by default. Then there are diehard fans of a team. They have all the memorabilia, they keep track of all the stats and rankings, who's injured, who's not, who's active, who's not, and what, uh, something else that is especially attributed to especially diehard fans is what? They go to every game whether or not it's home or not. They're getting on a plane and they're going to Phoenix because they're playing an away game. That is a mark of a true, true die-hard fan. They go to every game. There are even some fans that go to every game, regardless of if it's home or not. And for these fans, when they go to these games, they don't just show up 10 minutes before the game, do they, and hope there's a seat there. They don't just show up 10 minutes before it starts. It's a whole day experience, isn't it? You're getting up early and you're going to what? What always takes place before the game? The tailgate party, always before the game. The tailgate party hypes everyone up for the game. It's filled with great anticipation and expectation that the favorite team is going to win. As it usually occurs out in the parking lot, outside the stadium, it's also what? It's also a foretaste of the excitement and the noise volume and the intensity and the camaraderie inside the stadium during the actual game. Depending on the game itself and the final score of the game, it's sometimes the only part of the day that's exciting, the tailgate party, filled with all the anticipation and expectation so take that when we think of the spiritual gifts that paul has outlined in our passage and what we've been talking about the past month we can think of them in this same way the future and full kingdom of god that jesus will completely usher in and that we will get to enjoy for all of eternity in new jerusalem in a way is the full stadium experience with all the rejoicing and all the celebration and all the worship of our great and mighty and loving God. The full stadium experience. And it's even better because we know which team is victorious. Because we will have the full communion and full knowledge and full communication with God, we won't need any of the spiritual gifts. We won't need word of wisdom or doctrine or word of knowledge or application of that doctrine, because we will fully know God. We won't need great faith, for we shall see Him. We won't need healing, for we will all be glorified, and we will have perfected bodies. We won't need miracles, for we will live in a perfect world run by God. We won't need prophecy, for we will have full and open communication with God. And pertinent to our discussion today, we won't need to distinguish between true or false prophets, nor have the need to speak in different languages. In New Jerusalem, we will understand everything. And so because of this, the gifts, the spiritual gifts given to us by the Holy Spirit are the tailgate party. A foretaste of the fullness of what's to come part of their purpose is to excite us and to hype us up for what we will perfectly and fully experience someday. A foretaste. They are all a partial glimpse at what will be fully realized in the kingdom to come. As I've said throughout the past month, over the course of this month, I've been relying heavily on the views on spiritual gifts of theologian Dr. Wayne Grudem for his down-to-earth, understandable, and most importantly, thoroughly biblical understanding. And today I will be for the most part, but not fully. I've been mentioning this over the past month, that Paul gives a clear point in time. Some of you have been wondering about this. I've I've been mentioning it, but this is a brief touching on this again. I've been mentioning this over the past month, but Paul does give a clear point Point in time when all of the spiritual gifts will cease. I will briefly point this out now uh, because, like I said, I know there's been wondering about that with a fuller explanation once we work our way to these specific verses. But within the context of spiritual gifts, Paul says further on in this letter, love never fails. You may, you, you may have heard some of these verses in this chapter at a wedding, 1 Corinthians 13. Love never fails. He goes on to say, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, that, that, that word of knowledge, it will be done away. And here where we get, here's where we get to the timing. For we know in part and we prophesy in part now, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now, right now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then face to face, that's coming. Now I know in part, partially, but I will know fully, and here's the most important part, just as I also have been fully known. So we see that no matter what the spiritual gift, they will all be done away with when what is described as the perfect comes in verse 10. Everything will cease when the perfect comes. What's the perfect? Well, Paul explains that in verse 12. When he knows fully just as he's been fully known. Fully known by whom? Well, God, right? Has God ever not fully known us? No. He fully knew us before we even were conceived. He fully knew us. He has all... God has always known us fully and perfectly. But it's us who don't know God perfectly yet. Just as He has already always uh, known us. And we never will know God fully and perfectly as much as He has known us. Until when? Do we still know fully God, God fully as much as He knows us? No. So when will that happen? When Jesus returns and fully ushers in the kingdom of God. And we won't have any need for any of these spiritual gifts. Now I know there are different interpretations of what the perfect in verse 10 means. I'm not bashing anybody. There are different interpretations, such as the perfect meaning, the spiritual maturity of the church in different places or as a whole. But the simplest, if you're just reading this with the return of Jesus in mind, as, as it makes sense, the simplest and plainest and most logical understanding of these verses that is that all the spiritual gifts no matter what they are will not completely cease until jesus returns until the perfect comes and then we will know fully just as god already always has fully known us like I mentioned before, though, is that these verses, do they speak about when they will completely cease, because we will have no need of them, but they do not speak as to the frequency of each of these spiritual gifts, depending on what the season of the church is as a whole, or what would be the most helpful to individual churches in their growth, or where the gospel presence is, or the gospel presence is not. And that's why in our... Passage this morning in verse eleven, it's up to the Spirit to give to to give out these gifts as to what He determines will be the most beneficial and helpful for a church in any location or season of growth that it's in. It's up to the Spirit. It's not up to us. I can't look around and say, "Well, you know, I think we're missing this gift." So. Spirit, give that, or we're missing, or we should have a little bit less of this one. So Holy Spirit, maybe take that. That has nothing to do with any of us. It only has to do with the Spirit. What He sees is going on in the church and what would be most helpful for the growth of that church in whatever season that church is in. Okay, so with all of that said, let's finish up with the first with with the last few gifts that are on our list. And the first one that we come to in our passage is spirit distinguishing here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, if you brought your Bible with you, please turn there. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in a pew in front of you. Please also turn there. It's in the New Testament. You can look it up in the table of contents or ask a neighbor. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we're going to be in verse 10, and we're going to be about halfway through it. As we've already covered miracles, we've already covered prophecy last week, uh, and so we're picking up with, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits. That's what we read there about halfway through verse 10. This first gift on our list this morning is the one we'll spend the least amount of time on this morning. I think the NLT translates this best with, he gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God, or from another spirit. Now, what is another spirit? Plainly. Demonic. A demonic spirit. Whether a message is from the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, or from a demonic source. If you remember, the Corinthians had trouble dealing with false prophets. You remember that when we first started this chapter? We covered this in the first few verses of chapter 12. You, You can... Uh, breeze through the through those real quick. The first three verses of chapter twelve. The Corinthians' pagan Gentile background did not prepare them for the discernment that was required for the Christian faith. In their past, all they needed to worry about was just offering sacrifices to idols. That was it. You could do that pretty mindlessly. That left the they left the philosophizing about life. Philosophizing, There we go. Philosophizing about life and religion. They left all of that up to the philosophers and their students. They didn't worry themselves about that. As long as they offered their sacrifices, they were fine. That background certainly did not prepare them for the rigorous discipline of studying God's word and defending true doctrine about the Trinity, Jesus' deity and humanity, and how they should live in light of pleasing God. So at the beginning of chapter 12, Paul gives the Corinthians a simple test to combat the earliest heresy making its circles around the early church. That of denying the full humanity of Jesus. That led to sinful behavior. Because in their mind, if Jesus didn't have full humanity, then he didn't have lordship over their humanity, and then it didn't matter what they did with their human bodies. You see how dangerous that line of thinking quickly became? You deny Jesus's full humanity? The simple test was if a so-called Christian missionary or leader or teacher or prophet visited the church, they could not answer, and they could not answer a simple yes to Jesus's humanity, and instead they claimed that he was cursed if he did have a human body. The church wasn't to give them the time of day. Thanks, nice seeing you. We're going to go on with the truth of what we know about Jesus. If, however, someone claimed to believe in both Jesus' deity and humanity and that he was the Lord over every part of them and their lives, then the church should listen to them. That was the very simplest test. But what about if someone showed up and started working all these supernatural experiences like miracles and revealing information in prophecy... Since those are spiritual gifts, which we've already covered, it would seem like that person was a Christian who had those spiritual gifts, wouldn't that? Wouldn't it? It would certainly seem that way. But just as the Corinthians weren't prepared when it came to differentiating right doctrine from heresy, there also was needed the gift, the spiritual gift, of distinguishing between powers distinguishing between spirits, distinguishing between powers. You see, even demons have power. Okay? Demons have power. Don't be fooled. And demons know things that we might think they shouldn't. How do you think people who claim to speak to the dead get away with it all the time? Demons have power, and demons know things we think they, they shouldn't know. They have, even, remember, even Pharaoh's magicians did the same things Moses did through God's, but Moses did it through God's power. Pharaoh's magicians did it through demonic power. They have enough power to deceive us into believing what we're seeing is God's power. That's why this spiritual gift is so important. Paul even says elsewhere, remember this, But I am not surprised. Even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Wow! So it is no wonder that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. In the end, they will get the punishment their wicked deeds deserve. But even Satan himself disguises, wraps himself as an angel of light. So just because somebody knows different things or is able to do different things doesn't mean that that power is coming from God. And so like we talked about last week, the gift of prophecy needed to be regulated. It it needed to be evaluated. We spent a great deal last week looking at how the New Testament gift of prophecy and New Testament prophets are not the same as Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament prophets. New Testament prophets do not speak the very words of God and therefore do not have the same authority as Old Testament prophets. The revelation that God spontaneously gives, whether it's an impression or strong sense or prompting or image or vision or dream, that revelation is perfect and true and pure. The human interpretation of that. And relaying of that revelation known as prophecy can often be misinterpreted or spoken imperfectly. And if you missed that message last week, I encourage you to watch or listen to it on our website or podcast platforms. And so every prophecy given, even under revelation by the Holy Spirit, needs to be evaluated as to its accuracy. Paul gives that instruction in 1 Corinthians 14.29. One easy and great way to do that is God's gift of discernment, what we're talking about right now, the discernment of prophecy. In the Corinthians context, they greatly needed this gift. That is, people in their congregation who possess this gift, who have it revealed to them clearly, all right, this guy is demonically influenced, and we should show him the door. Or this guy has the heart of God and we should weigh what is prophesied carefully to see what should be done in response. That gift needed to be present. Just like with the other gifts, this one is still needed in the church today. It's still very much important. If there is someone who randomly shows up to a church service or prayer meeting who claims to have a prophecy for us, we need those who have the gift of spiritual discernment to make sure we should even proceed with listening to him or her further or not. It could be something demonically influenced, or we can't be afraid of this. It could be something that would be greatly encouraging greatly edifying greatly strengthening to us as a church even within the church there could be a spontaneous thing brought to one of our minds that we verbally relay and we need those who can confidently determine through the holy spirit if it's from god or not that's the whole point of this gift If you feel, if you're sitting here today or listening later on, if you feel like you can confidently determine whether or not something is from God by way of a strong subjective inward confidence, you have this gift of discernment between powers, discernment between spirits. Use that to regulate whether or not something revealed is from God and thus be a wall of protection a wall of defense, especially for those who could be easily swayed to just believe something because it seemed accurate or was accompanied by power. It's still a very important and needed gift for today. So that's the gift of spirit distinguishing. Secondly, and what we're going to spend most of our time on today, is tongues. You might, you might have come here today thinking, okay, finally, he's getting to this. What does the Bible say about the gift of tongues? <clears throat> Here we go. The spiritual gifts of tongues has, like prophecy, been the source of great confusion and controversy within the church. It's unfortunate that the Greek word for tongues, which means both the physical tongue in the human body in your mouth and the word languages, is rarely translated as that into English. They just left it be and just said, we're just going to leave it be as tongues. And so what happened with that is that's led to unbiblical thinking about what speaking in tongues is. Not bashing anybody. But unbiblical thinking about what tongues actually is is that it's some strange, otherworldly, other... worldly language, otherworldly experience, otherworldly language. So, in looking at this topic as a whole throughout the whole Bible, we will gain a biblical understanding of what the gift of tongues really is, what Paul is really talking about in when he talks about the gift of tongues, and what its purpose in the church even today is. Alright, we cannot disconnect the phrase speaking in tongues from the rest of Scripture as if it's some brand new concept bereft of Old Testament understanding. As just some new thing that just appeared in the New Testament. Baptism in the New Testament has its roots in the Old Testament law of cleansing with water. The communion elements, as we've seen recently, have their roots in the Old Testament observance of what? Passover. Granted, These are gifts given through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is a New Testament concept. But all the gifts, especially the miraculous ones, have their roots in the Old Testament. We even understand New Testament prophecy in light of the Old Testament understanding that God revealed something he wanted wanted conveyed. So in order to understand this in the most biblical way, we need to see it throughout the Bible as a whole and most importantly, not most importantly, but throughout the Bible as a whole and in the most simplest way. Throughout the Bible as a whole and in the most simplest way. Not reading something into, reading something we shouldn't be into it. Firstly, when we see the word for tongues translated in the Old Testament, it only and ever means languages. In the Old Testament, the Greek when uh, it's, when, we use the, when we see the word for tongues translated in the Old Testament it only and ever means languages and it's only used in connection with known earthly languages of the nations. In fact the Greek translated Hebrew Old Testament named, uh, known as the Septuagint, was completed 100 years before the birth of Jesus, and they used the same Greek word that would be used in the New Testament for tongues. So we can confidently conclude that the New Testament writers have this same understanding in mind when they also write the word for tongues in the New Testament. For they make no attempt, you can see this, They make no attempt to clarify it as something different than the Old Testament understanding of it, and that that Old Testament understanding is different earthly languages. Now that matches up with the purpose for the gift of languages. When God created humankind, that's why I said we need to see this throughout the whole Bible. When God created humankind, he created them with one language, right? We read... Now, the whole earth used the same language and the same words. They had one language. As humankind became more and more sinful, the strength of the human race became incredibly dangerous. God lamented that because of their unified language, nothing would stop how evil they would become again. This isn't the, When we get to Genesis 11, it's not the first time God's lamenting about how evil humanity can become. Because this is after God had already lamented that He had even created humanity and destroyed the whole world with a flood. So again, wanting to slow down the wave of evil from consuming humanity once again, God intervened. And he created many and many different languages and gave them out to everyone as they're constructing the Tower of Babel. The only thing people had in common at that point, once God confused all the languages, created all these different languages, handed them all out, nobody understood what anybody else was saying. The only thing that people had in common now was finding others that spoke their saying language and spread out over the earth. Now, actually obeying the command that they had blatantly refused to obey following the flood. God said, now that I've flooded the earth and Noah and your descendants, what you're supposed to do now is spread out all over the earth. And they said, eh, we're not going to do that. We're going to stay in this one place and build this tower up to heaven. So now they're forced to obey God's command to spread out all over the earth. Sin and disobedience caused the curse of fractured languages. And ever since then, over the rest of the thousands of years of humanity, what has that only caused? Confusion, wars, people doing horrible things to each other. That is something we still struggle with right now fractured languages. Sometime after work was abandoned on the Tower of Babel, God called a a man named Abram, who he would rename Abraham, to start a nation dedicated to God. Those descendants would form the nation of Israel. Israel would have one language. Hebrew, right? They would have one language used to praise God. All the Psalms used to praise God were originally written in what? Hebrew. Now there's one language out of all the languages in the earth that is used to praise God. Every other nation on the earth would not possess that language. They had their own language, but it was only used to praise their gods and in reality curse the one true God. This was... All the other nations of the earth would have to look to Israel to find faith in the one true God and praise Him with Israel's language. This was a somewhat improvement and progression in praising God with a language. However, we know this. You read through the Old Testament. Israel would fail time and time and time again to represent the light of the one true God. And God would need to provide another way to fulfill for the world what Israel forfeited. Thus, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the fulfillment of the purpose of Israel and being the light to the rest of the world, came and paid our sin debt on the cross. Three days later, he rose again and unleashed a new covenant between God and man, known to us as what? The New Covenant. Now, instead of the world being beholden to the testimony of Israel and only praising God through Israel's language, a new progression in human history began. On the day of Pentecost, the 120 believers in Jesus gathered together, were suddenly indwelt with the Holy Spirit. And what did they start doing? They began speaking in different languages. We read that the crowd around that place in Jerusalem was comprised of Jewish people from every nation on the earth and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee. And yet, we all hear these people speaking in our own languages, nations from all over the earth, about the wonderful things God has done, praising God. This was a turning point in human history. At one point there was one language, but no one praised God with it. Then there were multiple languages, but only one that praised God. Now, even though there are multiple languages, what is now possible? They can all now be used to praise God, can't they? Pentecost symbolized that Jesus was now for everyone, regardless of the language spoken by them. And that language could be used to praise God. Fast forward to the future. Standing before the throne of God, and we read, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation, from every tribe, from every people, and from every language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. So people from every language, using every language, are using those to stand before God in heaven. That is where we're headed. Right here. That's where we're headed. A redemption of the curse of scattered languages and all the heartache that has arisen from those differences over the thousands of years of human history. This is the redemption and the blessing of that curse. We started out with one language to praise God, even though we gave that up. And we will will be redeemed into one language again to praise God. So, thinking about tongues in this way, just as healing, prophecy, and miracles are foretastes of the full kingdom of God, the gift of tongues is also a foretaste of the full kingdom of God. And it's redemption of language to praise God. Therefore, the gift of tongues, if you want to write down a definition, the gift of tongues is having the gift to speak in earthly languages and dialects the one speaking doesn't understand, but someone else in the world does. It is not a sign as many churches will preach, it is not a sign for true faith in Jesus that everyone must experience. It is not a sign for true faith in Jesus that everyone must experience. That's not biblical. And, and, and thinking that if you don't ever experience speaking in tongues, you're not a, a true believer. That's not biblical. Paul outright rhetorically asks, all do not speak with tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? And the resounding, rhetorical, obvious answer is no, of course not. That's what he intends there. Furthermore, when Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, wrote it, he was Paul's traveling companion at a couple of points and no doubt discussed many different things, including the phenomenon of speaking in different earthly languages as a gift and sign of the Holy Spirit. Neither one, read and read of it, in the book of Acts, And all of Paul's writings, neither one clarified in any of their writings that Pentecost was something different from the rest of the experiences of speaking in different languages that are referenced throughout their writings. Nobody clarifies that. So, we can confidently conclude that what happened at Pentecost is what continues on through today through the gift of languages. We know from Scripture that Paul had the gift of languages. Some interpret that when Paul says, if I could speak in all the languages of earth and of angels, but didn't love others, I would only be a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal, to mean that Paul could speak in angelic language when he spoke in tongues. Therefore, they surmise those who have the gift of tongues today can also speak in a heavenly language. But that's an incredibly dangerous assumption to make from this reference. First of all, here, Paul is using hyperbole or exaggeration to prove his point about how important love is. He is saying that even if he could speak all the languages on the earth and he could speak angelic languages but didn't have love, he'd be aggravating as someone pointlessly smashing together symbols. Anybody who has a kid that got their hands on a drum set knows what I'm talking about. Furthermore, Paul recounts a vision he had at one point when he was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. So, there is a heavenly language, there is an angelic language, but it's one that no human is allowed to speak with or without the Holy Spirit. So the question remains... What's the point of the gift of languages? In another part of the world where the gospel presence is not, has not been established and the word of God has not yet been translated, the gift of languages is incredibly valuable. Incredibly valuable. The speaker doesn't understand what they're saying. They may even be speaking in their own language. But through the gift of languages, those hearing it understand it and are driven to put their faith in Jesus. That's why Paul says, So then tongues are for a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Just as healing miracles and prophecy point to and remind us of the coming fullness of the kingdom of God, the spiritual gift of of speaking in another language to praise God points to the coming day when people from every tongue and every language will gather together to praise God. It points out the new covenant age we belong to of God extending faith in Jesus to anyone regardless of native language and the insurmountable grace he has towards Gentiles in bringing us and our Gentile languages into his family of faith. He didn't have to do that, but he did it out of his grace. The fact that any language can be used to glorify God is a tremendous gift we can be reminded of as the Holy Spirit sees fit and the frequency he determines according to the location and need. But here's the problem and why it's only a foretaste of the future kingdom. Paul points out in 1 Corinthians fourteen twenty-seven through 28, no more than two or three should speak in tongues. They must speak one at a time and someone must interpret what they say. If no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. That's the shortcoming. That's why it's only partial, a partial glimpse at what we will experience in the future kingdom of God. If one has the gift of prophecy and they've been given a revelation, they must prophesy that revelation in order to edify the whole church. But if one has the gift of languages and the Holy Spirit starts moving in them to praise God in another earthly language and no one is there to interpret, they must only whisper it to God privately. In that way, prophecy is actually more desirable for the church for it is always edifying to the church. And in fact, Paul points that out throughout the first whole first half of 1 Corinthians 14. You can you can read that on your own time. So what would interpretation include? It could be that there's someone in the location. Who understands that language. And can interpret it for the rest of the people. But Paul also speaks of the spiritual gift of interpretation as well. He notes that. 1 Corinthians 12. And the end of verse 10. And to another the interpretation of tongues. So there is a specific gift of interpretation of tongues. This describes that there are some who can be given the gift of interpreting a language being spoken that they didn't understand previously, who can, at that point that language is spoken, have the ability to at least interpret it into the dominant language of the congregation. Does that make sense? Getting a lot of blank stares. The gift of interpretation is that if there is, a, if there is somebody who is praising God in a different earthly language that no one else in the congregation understands, but there is somebody in the congregation who does have the gift of interpretation and they have at least enough understanding of what's being spoken to interpret it for, into the dominant language of the congregation, that person has the gift of interpretation. Now is everybody with me? At least more than you were a few seconds ago. Okay. So as we close this gift, this list of spiritual gifts, we must remember that it's up to the Holy Spirit. Again, it's not up to any one of us. It's not up to me. It's not up to anyone else here. It's up to the Holy Spirit to give these out as to what is the most beneficial to the unity and the building up of the church. I referenced this at the beginning of the of this mini series, and we come back full circle to it in verse eleven. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually. Here's what's most important about that. Just as He wills. Just as He wills. This is not random or willy-nilly. This list isn't even close to exhaustive. Paul also references spiritual gifts of encouragement elsewhere and administration and order elsewhere, and service elsewhere. The Spirit gives all of these and many more out in connection with a purpose and mission that Jesus has for us to use them with. And it's the Father who changes hearts and lives who are using of these spiritual gifts. As such, they're all to be used to glorify God. They're all to be used to strengthen and unify and serve the church. They've been given to us to use for a purpose, so we must be using them. We can't be afraid to, for we all must remember that it was God who gave them to us to use in the first place. Like I referenced last week, they show that the Holy Spirit is alive and well here and moving here among us. They produce spiritual growth and they produce awe and wonder at our mighty God. And how is that not glorifying to Him? They show that we don't just believe in the truth of the Word of God, but we believe and live and move and have our being in the living God who continues to move and work in unexplainable ways in our, in our hearts, in our church, and in our world. And as powerful as these gifts are, we remember that they are only mere foretastes of what we joyfully expect and joyfully anticipate in the coming of the fullness of the kingdom of of our all-powerful God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this list of spiritual gifts and what they point us to. They point us to, to be excited and be hyped up for that full and coming kingdom of God that we will experience completely one day. And Lord, we know that while we are still on this earth, you have work for us to do. And you empower us to do that work through these spiritual gifts. And Lord, as we use them, we are blessed and we see you work in unexplainable and powerful ways. And we know that these are only mere foretastes of what is to come. And so, Lord, let us be excited. Let us be excited and use the gifts that you have given to us. Use them for the mission and purpose that you have given to us. And expect know that you are going to use them to change hearts and change lives and grow and build and unify our church. And I pray all these things in the power of the resurrected Christ. Amen.